0: This morning is the first Sunday after Trinity. And of course, the Trinity is a belief that's certainly taught in Scripture, but the word Trinity does not appear in Scripture. But the, I, the concept that God is one, uh, and yet there are three persons. I mean, what a mystery that it is uh, to speak of. And so to use one of the ancient formularies, the Father is not the Son, and the Father is not the Spirit, but the Father is God. The Son, Jesus, is not the Father, and He's not the Spirit, But Jesus is God and God is one. The Spirit is not the Father and is not the Son, but the Spirit is God and God is one. So, you know, Augustine said, if anyone says they understand the Trinity, they're they're liars or crazy. All right? And in the Eastern Church, uh, Larry and I were talking between services, there is the the negative school, the via negative, the negative way. And and the idea is that... uh, in the orthodox churches they have felt historically that it's easier to determine what is not when we talk about things like the 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 mystery of the trinity than it is to really explain the fullness of any of the categories of what it means and that's just like the word love i mean we can apprehend what the word love means that's to to hold on to a part of it but but it's too big to comprehend to know the fullness of it and of course that is certainly true it's not that it's not that we don't know certain and true things about the trinity but it also, uh, those certain and true things, we're just scratching the surface of the profundity of the mystery of what it means that we have a God who is unified in essence, but distinct in person. Uh, uh, you know, amazing. Uh, the, I had to write on this uh, at Wheaton College. I wrote on it in seminary. You write on it in your PhD work, you, and, and you still, uh, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in a way, but you think, it's just such a big thing, uh, you know, who could really uh, understand uh, what this is so I think of it, you know, I'm not much of a science person or anything But I think about the Sun and I think about how I'm counting on the Sun going down tonight and get up tomorrow I benefit from its warmth uh, I benefit from its light etc. But I don't uh, I don't comprehend. I don't know what sunspots I can't imagine the kind of combustion and things that are going on I, I don't get all that and, and the fact that I don't get all that doesn't bother me in terms of I am very comfortable with the fact that I know and benefit from something that I don't know that much about. Uh, For me, that happens a lot. You know, I tell my kids, if I had a book for everything I don't know, I'd have a library, right? And uh, I don't understand lots of things, but I'm I'm very grateful to benefit from the truth of them. So now the whole point of that is, here is one of the most important doctrines of the whole church. And on the first Sunday after Trinity, when we would be expecting now from the rest of the church year until Advent, successive Sundays that talk about the nature of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. And yet in the first Sunday after Trinity, what great doc- we would expect a great doctrinal teaching about the Trinity. Instead, we get the application of the doctrine of Trinity and we get a very long epistle taken out of 1 John and it says and it's all about love. Meaning it's as if the church wants us to understand. You can't talk about understanding and knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord or understanding the Trinity have a relationship with the God, uh, the eternal God who is known in one God, three persons, without understanding that the implications of that doctrine forces us to know that we must be a people who are characterized by love because the nature of the Trinity itself is characterized by love. By the way, as a bonus for a $5 bonus, who knows how many times the word love was mentioned in the reading this morning? Who's, we, got, we probably got some counters in here. Who counted how many times love was spoken? I didn't say guess. <laughs> I love saying no, no. I only know because the, the physics professor who, said, who read it at the 8 o'clock told me. I, I wouldn't. <laughs> 32 times love was mentioned in that first. I mean, that's a long passage, but still. 32 times the word love was mentioned in the epistle. According to him, Chuck, Chuck Parks, the physics professor. I, I, tr- I didn't count him, but I'm trusting him. He's a smart guy. Uh, good at math. All right. And now $5 is still in my wallet. All right. Just keep you on your toes. Okay. So then we get this story about Lazarus and the rich man. So let's talk for a minute what's going on. All right. So we're going to preach that out of Luke 16. But one of the first insights of which you paid me big bucks to give you is Luke 16 comes right after... Luke 15. (laughs) Luke 15 tells us the story of a success of three parables that make up one larger parable, and that's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So you've got this big thing, and at the end of the parable of the prodigal son, or the lost son, and the extravagant father, you have this question that's out there, because Jesus has been rebuking the Pharisees, who are self-righteous and religious, but have no love for the people who are on the outside and who are strange from the God of all love and the God of all mercy. So Jesus tells this parable because they're complaining that he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, meaning Jesus considers people who are off the track, head in the wrong direction, living in positive enmity or opposition to God. He considers those people really important according to the economy of interest of the Trinity for mankind. Meaning, God's not just interested in the good people. He is completely interested in everybody. And so Jesus makes it his business and shows in this parable that those who are self-righteous and those who think they're really great religious, they could actually miss it. And the people who are supposed to be so bad, because they know their need, they're actually closer to the kingdom of God than some people who think they don't have any need. And so we end chapter 15 with this thing about the older brother who excommunicates himself. He says to his father, he says, you and your son, because he won't go into the party, which represents heaven. He excludes himself by saying to the father, your son, meaning he's not my brother. And that depicts a heart who has not encountered the life in the Trinity. You know, a heart that is hardened, that doesn't understand that we're connected as brothers and sisters in this world, that there's a level of connectedness, uh, is a heart that shows does not and is not plugged into the love of God which has been revealed chiefly and supremely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it ends with that. We kind of always wonder what's going to happen. What I never thought about before is how 15 and 16 are related. Then the first 13 ver- verses of chapter 16, Jesus gives a very strange parable because he says this unjust guy is a model for us. So here's the story. I'm not going to preach it up by word, but we're going to get there in a second. So... The first 13 verses tells us this parable. And in this parable, you got a guy who is the money manager of a very wealthy industrialist. And, and as it comes out, the guy realizes, you're not managing my money very well, and so I'm going to fire you. And he gives him a two-week notice. And in a two-week notice, the guy says, hmm, um, I'm going to be out of this job with all my salary and benefits really quickly, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make some friends for the time in the future. And so what he does is there's people that own the industrialist or the, the wealthy guy a lot of money. And so uh, let's say Larry owes $100,000, and the guy goes, hey, I'm going to... Larry, if you sign off right now for $70,000, i will sign you off, and I'll say you're free and clear. Because the guy has enough sense to know he's going to need some friends in a short amount of time. So he does this with all these people. And so he basically, out of self-interest, he makes all these deals with others so that he will be in a better position in the life to come shortly for him when he's dispossessed of his job. And Jesus says, this guy acts more shrewdly than people who claim to be religious people like the Pharisees. And then he goes on to tell us a story about the life that's coming. These are all connected. Now, the Pharisees in verse 14 made fun of Jesus because he's teaching about money, and Jesus is connecting his love for the lost people With the issue of money and what he builds into is to say that what keeps the older brother And what's going to keep people out of the kingdom who are religious is is that they're lovers of money And I don't know about you, but when I see what jesus calls lovers of money, I realize Man, I got to be careful because that sure makes sense to me Mean the pharisees were people who tithed all their money They were religious. They gave alms but jesus fundamentally they understood the money and the possessions that they had through hard work and saving. They did all these wonderful things, and God was pleased, and God blessed them. But at the same time, they still saw what they had, and what they had of uh, these uh, luxuries and different things that God had provided in terms of their excess, they saw it still as theirs. I mean, they tied, they gave offerings, but they still thought of everything being themselves. And so he's going to give a parable to suggest to them that the way they used their money, even though... They tithe, meaning the parable of the rich man in Lazarus is not about a guy who is outside pagan Gentile. It's about somebody who probably shares pretty closely to the way that many of us might have grown up and thought about money. Meaning I grew up in churches with very wealthy Christians who gave lots of money, tied their money, uh, but would certainly fit in the, oh my goodness, we better, we want to be careful here when we see what Jesus says about money and its reflection about our life rooted in Jesus or not. All right? So he does the first thing. This guy's shrewd because he's not just looking for now, he's planning ahead. Jesus is saying to us, we better be careful because the way we live our lives now, he's going to say a lot about the life to come. That's not work salvation, by the way. What he's saying is the life of Jesus expressed in a person legitimately is going to look a certain way. It's like there's a difference between a flower and a weed. They don't look the same. And he's like saying, the heart that's hardened against the poor reflects a certain kind of thing. And the heart that is open over here reflects something else. And they're not the same thing. All right? So let's look now. By the way, in the middle of all this, Jesus goes in and talks about divorce. Why? I mean, well, money and divorce, that's not so disconnected thematically, right? The number one cause of divorce is money issue, disagreement. Why? Because money reflects what we value. Right? I, I, I never felt guilty spending uh, 30 bucks on a steak. I've been a little resentful about some fancy shoes, though. Meaning we all do, we spend money what we like, right? We're, so money, it's not surprising money trips us. up because we disagree how to spend money, and money tells us what we value. Okay? So that's, but also, in Deuteronomy, between the teachings about money and the curse and everything... In Deuteronomy 24, that's where the divorce stuff. So Deuteronomy actually connects money and marriage and divorce as well, thematically, and in, in, in the way it's spaced in Deuteronomy, and Jesus is falling the Deuteronomic pattern uh, in terms of adding it in here. Now, the Pharisees considered themselves to be proper interpreters of the Old Testament. All right? Jesus is telling them they're not. They have misunderstood the blessings and the cursings. Meaning it's not that when we work hard and save and, and do well, it's not, Jesus is not against that. This is not a thing about politics where someone can say, oh, I'm Democrat, and this is God's favor. You, know, you can see that Jesus for me, or I'm Republican. It's not about that at all. This is about people to understand that everything they have is God's. Okay, so yes, will God bless people that work hard? Yeah, yes. It can, the point is, the next step. Jesus' problem is not that people would work hard and save and be fruitful. And all, that, that's not the problem. The question is, do we understand that all the things that God provides ultimately are at his disposal to be restored back to him in the means by which we care for other people. That's what Jesus is teaching. It's not an easy word. So put your seatbelt on, and let's look at verse uh, about 19 of Luke chapter 16. There was a certain rich man. Now, we were having a discussion about how to pronounce the Latin, I call it dives, but I was told by two really smart guys that the, the way that the Vulgate and the Latin is really Dives? Dives? From the south, you call it Dives? Yeah, he, say, he was telling me he had heard this preacher call it divies. I don't know. Uh, some, we've got Latin people. Carter, Dives? Dives? You've heard Dives? I don't know. I, I, I'm out of it. I thought it was Dives. But whatever it is, some of the, we probably got Latin scholars in here. But anyway, so uh, it, this is, it's not a proper name. Rich in Latin, apparently, is D I V E S, apparently or something close to that, it, it, and uh, that's one of the roots or something. So at the end of the day, oh, we have a Latin professor here. How do you say it right properly? Okay, d there you go. That's what I was going to say. It's not what you said. <laughs> you have steered me wrong once again. There's a corner back there. Well, that's, yeah, we should have known. In Gainesville, you're going to have professors and people that know this stuff. That's great. She's just probably just cringing hearing me talk and cringing hearing you talk, too. <laughs> it's not just me. All right. So the rich man and Lazarus. So the rich man, it says, was clothed in purple. And purple, uh, they, you couldn't get the purple color except for by smushing all these snails. And apparently, it was very expensive to crush all the snails to get the purple dye. And so only the finest wools would take it, take the color properly, and you had to do all this work. So purple was the most expensive kind of garment. So it's kind of like, um, I said in the 8 o'clock Gucci or something, I I don't know, you guys know these brands that only the super, it's not Gucci, how do you say it? Gucci? All right, there you go. Yeah. Like she knows, her and me are the same talking, Yeah. We're both hicks, like we both know. Thank you. Uh, some of you probably know how you say the, you know, hermit. Well, they say Hermes or something. Anyway, you know, you, you, these fancy brands that you get in the fancy airports, all that. I mean, he is decked out. But not only that, the Bible tells us about his underwear. Did you know that? Fine linen. It came from Egypt. Just like today, you get the Egyptian cotton. It was the best linen, and it came from Egypt. So he's telling us he wore robes on the outside and the best underwear on the inside. That's what it means, purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. Now, I imagine sometimes, you know, the big TV ministry that's never happened yet, but any day now, you know, this church could catch on, and we could, you know, you never know. And and, and on that day, you know, some of the big churches, they have their own, like, restaurant cafeteria things for the staff, and and I imagine when that happens, every day there'll be a big sashimi platter for me every day, right? There'll be lots of meetings at Mark's and... uh, uh, Embers, there'll be lots of you know, things like that. We'll be going to uh, the other one, what's the guy, the football? Shulah's, we'll be going to Shulas. I was made for this. <laughs> he fared sumptuously every day. Now, again, the context, he's Jesus rebuking the Pharisees who tithed and gave offerings, and even gave some money to the poor. This rich guy is implicit in the context of chapter 15 and 16 He did those things. He still didn't understand that God's blessing on him still had a burden on him to respond to people differently than what he understood. 20, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. We're going to talk about the meaning of the name and why. Well, Eleazar is the Hebrew, and it meant one who needs the help of God. I don't know about you, but I I thought, if I was going to get a tattoo, I might put that on me. I need the help of God. What a, what a statement. Full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. So when I go to Chad, so different cultures, it's, it's amazing. It's so different. You go to Chad, and then you have like this big bowl. So you, you have all the people come for lunch, and it's always chicken. And they don't eat chicken all the time, but because I'm there, when you come as a guest, they'll always feed you something that they may have once a week or twice, uh, uh, once every two weeks. When I come, they feed me chicken for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You feel embarrassed. Honestly, um, you feel embarrassed because you know these people cannot afford it. But because you're a guest, that's how people treat you uh, when you travel most of the places in the world. And they have this beautiful stew, but it's in this humongous pot. And so you might be there, let's say, with uh, the women eat, but they don't eat. I just tend to culture. They don't eat when you eat. You're eating like 10 men or whatever, or six men. You're sitting around this pot. uh, And... and, uh, and so basically, first you have a ceremony and you wash everyone's hands. So the first thing is I come and, and I watch, and it's a, it's a respectful thing. So I say, Ken, here, and Ken washes and scrubs, but we're all watching him. Because in a moment, we're all going to put our hands in the same pot. So it's not just ceremonial. We want to keep scrubbing. Yeah, keep scrubbing. Yeah. And, and then he takes it and the next guy. And you go around. At first, I just thought it was ceremonial. Then it became very clear after I ate the first time. It ain't just ceremonial. How well did you wash your hands? Of course, you don't put your left hand in, but you wash your left hand. Uh, And in any case, so you're going in, and they have this stuff that's kind of like, uh, it'd be kind of like sticky grits. If you imagine grits that's kind of um, almost like cream of wheat looking. uh, What's the name? of it? Someone probably knows the name of this stuff. What's the name of it? Polenta? Yeah, so they have the polenta stuff, and you're there, and it's white, and you kind of make a little ball and you no, it's not plenty whatever it is it's something very similar uh, and you put it in there it's white though but you put it in and you kind of grab up some chicken and some sauce with your hand and you eat it and we're all eating this stuff together pretty amazing but what happens is of course then you're not putting your left hand in uh or if you get, put your left hand in, you're going to get some people upset so you, you're doing that and you're being very careful and i'm being very self-conscious to make sure about my left hand because I don't think of it that way, and and there I am, and, and, and but what happens is now you're all greasy with your hand, and you kind of sometimes you want to kind of wipe your hand before, you know, you go back for more because you got so much other stuff all over you, and uh, so what you do is you have bread there, and you take the bread and you wipe your hands with the bread, and the bread absorbs the grease and you use the bread, a piece of bread, to wipe your hands, and then you either eat it, like I would be wanting to do, or other people, like this rich man, he would throw it down. So it says the crumbs from his table, it means this guy was so wealthy, he was eating so many food, that the amount of food that he just threw away, the crumbs, the pieces of bread, the scraps, he just used to wipe his, was enough to feed this guy. The guy would have been okay just with the scraps of bread he threw but his heart was hard. He saw him every day. He knew his name. Listen, one of the great problems we have is we are exposed to so many people in need and we simply cannot help everybody. And we just have what they call compassion fatigue. The problem is we then shut our heart down to everybody. Here's one of the points of this for you because I'm going to end a different way. One of the points for you is, listen, you can't help everybody, but you know the name of some people who need your help. And God is not asking you to do the part you can't do. The part for you to do is pray, Lord, who are the ones we can help? All right? Who are the ones we can't? You find the people in your life that you can help. All right? Can't help everybody. I don't even open the letter. I get so many letters. This is what happens you have a daughter who wants to be a missionary and all that. You know. Oh, every, every, I mean, there's so much need around the world. But I just, I just feel bad because I, I can't help. There's tremendous, I can't help. But what happens is then we shut our hearts down and we stop living and we start dying. And people who have the love of the Trinity in them have to stay engaged and we have to be open and alert to the people in this world who need our helps and we know their name. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of swords who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, he was so bad that the dogs couldn't even help himself. he couldn't beat the dogs off. He was so weak. The dogs came and licked his sores, 22. So it was that the beggar died, and nobody cared. Nobody came, nobody cared, couldn't afford a funeral. And like in many, many places of the world, he's buried in a common grave. No big service, no flowers, no words over him. But heaven had a different perspective on the guy, not because there's no moral. Uh, salvific character because we're poor or not. But in the parable, Jesus is teaching us that often on earth, how people see it on earth is not the way the angels and God sees it from heaven's perspective. Meaning that there are good and holy people who are really struggling and having a really bad time in this world. And God cares about the, the ones who aren't good and holy too. He cares about the prodigals as well. That's what he had just told them, right? So the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, remember, the Jews believed that even the worst Jew, no matter what they did, that Abraham would be there at the time of death. You know how we have all the St. Peter jokes about St. Peter at the gate? That really comes from the Jewish idea of Abraham. Because the Jews believed that every Jew, that Abraham would be there, and even the ones that should go to hell, he would grab them and protect them and go in the right direction. All right, And that even when righteous Gentiles came... He'd, keep, he'd knock them, and they wouldn't make it. All right? That was the popular notion of how Abraham was, was, was going to be there for them. So, but instead, this guy who was absolutely insignificant, unwanted, unloved, uncared for, the angels, on a mission from God, bring him right to Abraham's presence, and he's in Abraham's bosom. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, we have a large word called sheol, which is the word equivalent to Hades here in Greek which is English, this thing about uh, hell that's coming up. We're looking at Abraham's bosom. But in Sheol, or the place of death, there are two compartments. There is Abraham's bosom, which is for the good people who were waiting until Jesus died on the cross and and ascended into heaven before anyone else could go with him to be in heaven uh, with the Father. All right? Abraham's bosom is no longer necessary or needed. There's no more people in Abraham's bosom. The old preacher joke is, it's a ghost town now. Yeah. Yeah. Some of you go back to sleep. Okay, so there we go. But in the other part, the bad part of of Sheol is Gehenna, which is the place of torment, and that's where the fire and all the the brimstone, all that stuff. Uh, And and so Jesus is using Hades, which is equivalent to Sheol, and he's using it within the context of the bad part or the Gehenna part uh, in terms of the rich man, even though here we see uh, Lazarus is at... Abraham's bosom, which is a waiting room, a a nice place, but not as good as heaven. So the rich man also died and was buried. He had a funeral, lots of flowers, important people came. Everyone said all the things he gave money to, da 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 you know, he was a great guy, big, big all that, but at the end, no angels came and got him. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, in Abraham's bosom. He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus. I mean, again, Lazarus is just a tool. Uh, As if, you know, he still thinks things the way they were on earth. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in the flame. But Abraham said, Son, I remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. This is juxtaposition. See, similar stories were told like this story, this parable, and Jesus twisted it for them. In most of the stories, the guy asks for someone from the dead to come, and that person's allowed. In this other parable uh, parable tradition uh, in Judaism, and there was lots of these stories given, and someone comes from death and tells them, and they change their ways. And, and, And Jesus doesn't tell the story that way. Son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. The doctor, when, when I had diabetes, got my diagnosis, the doctor said to me, you've had your ice cream. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. That's what he received. But now, the juxtaposition, now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fix, so that those who want to pass from here cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. All right, now, there's more. I'm going to stop there. Well, I'm not going to stop there, but I'm going to not go to the next section that finishes the story. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, whose lives, for better or for worse, were largely focused on Scripture. But they were religious and they were self-righteous, and they saw the blessings and the way God had blessed them and it became a way to harden their heart and to look down upon other people. We have to be careful that we don't become or aren't those people. Yes, well, God bless your hard work, and, and most, yeah, yes, we're not saying that you don't, do, the Lord blesses you, he wants it, but it's not just that God bless you and you worked hard and you did your education, you did this. it's that having received these blessings, God wants you to keep in mind, people that have the life of the Trinity in them, who really know Jesus, Cannot stray from the fact that the love of Jesus is there and that there's a purpose for the wealth and the blessings of this life and it is to advance the kingdom of God. And so our obligation cannot be limited to simply tithes and offering. We got all these people worry about tithing and offering and we don't talk about money because we got so many people today worried about people talking about giving money. You cannot mature in the faith if you're not giving. I'll tell you that. I feel bad sometimes because I think I don't teach you enough but I, I got so sick in the early days that people thought that the church is trying to take your money. Listen, the church has got better things to do to take your money, but you don't have anything better to do than to be worshiping God in your giving. All right, this, but I'll tell you something. This has hit me differently because in the story, this guy represents the Pharisees, meaning he was a person who tithed. I believe in tithing. He was a person who believed in offering. I believe in offering. And yet, it was the rest of that that he saw and used in a very self-focused, consumptuous way when there were people around that needed, it. And Jesus says the life of God wasn't in them, that it reflects. I mean, the point of Jesus, the life of God. You Pharisees, you judge other people why they're not where you are, whether they deserve it or they don't deserve it, doesn't matter. God cares for them. And God has blessed you, whether you worked hard or you'd however, God has blessed you. And Jesus is saying the life of God isn't in you. That's a scary word. I never thought of uh, the rich man representing the people who give faithfully and give their offerings and still uh, live with much self-consumption and uh, have hardened our hearts uh, uh, away from and against many people that we could be helping. I am convinced that the biggest thing that shuts us down, though, is that we are worrying about too many people instead of being engaged with the people we know. I think that's what's so important about the word Lazarus. What the scholars believe is this, that Jesus put the name in there because he was trying to make the point, it's the people you know that God's going to hold you accountable for. It's not all the people you don't know. You can't fix the world. But there are people you can help, and that's who we're going to be responsible for. We have to understand that part of the love of the Trinity means that especially at every level of our lives, It is not less than tithes and offerings that some of us think is so outrageous. It's not less than that, but it's far more that God is expecting from us, all right, to operate in a way that would please Him and reflect the life and the love of the Trinity, that seeks and saves whom? That which was lost, meaning the heart of God cares about people. The prodigal that the Father waited for and cared for. He didn't chase them, but He loved them and He wept at the estrangement that He had between his son, who was a prodigal. Meaning, he didn't say, well, that guy, he doesn't deserve anything. He, he cared. He didn't close his heart to him. The thing I'm going to pray this morning in just a couple of seconds is that the Lord would help us not to shut down our heart, not to be overwhelmed. I think the enemy, the devil, brings all this stuff to make you feel guilty, all this stuff that you can't do, and then it just shuts us down. It's just too much. But that the Lord to give you a filter to know you are not responsible for what you can't do. But then to be seeking and asking, now, Lord, how can I be a light? How can I be a help to the people around me that I can? Show me, lead me, and guide me. And the Lord's going to open up for us, and the Lord's going to let us be a tremendous blessing to many. Fair enough? We do not want to be people who on Trinity Sunday sit here one more time, here another sermon, and forget, oh, what a great response God's expecting of us. Even if we're faithful in so many religious ways, God's expecting the life of God in us would compel us uh, to care and to live in a sacrificial way with the people around us in this broken world. Would you stand...